Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Brendan with Evoke Bike, back with a new podcast for you with special guest, Ted King. This was awesome. Caught up with Ted on some roadie stuff before we got into gravel. And Ted was actually, uh, when he was on the Cervelo test team, came back to do Green Mountain Stage Race. It was my first Cat 1 road race. So I was like, whoa, it's Ted King. And then got to race against him at Land Run and didn't even realize it was him because he was quite mountainous with a big beard. But we get into everything talking about his trajectory and evolution of going from early roadie ranks all the way to gravel in today's world. Uh, His cognition of retirement during his last road season and kind of how he got to experience everything with that viewpoint. Ted gets a little philosophical, goes on a couple tangents, which was awesome. We talk about Grand Tours and One Day Classics, tire size. I've been overinflating my tires and Ted throws me back into 2012, Unbound Gravel, uh, a little bit about his family, and a couple t- couple more tangents. And then we're going to have the second episode a few days later, just trying to break these into more digestible pieces rather than a full-on hour. So hope you enjoy this one. Ted, thanks again. This was incredible. Talk to you guys soon. Thanks for doing this, man. No problem. No problem. Yeah, this is awesome. Uh- so we kind of started putting content out and making videos and the next iteration of that just became like, Hey, we should reach out to people who are way better at this than us and see if they want to talk about some of this stuff and share their kind of process. Um, we got into gravel a couple years ago, the traditional roadies like, Oh, I guess we're doing gravel now. And um, so cross paths with you a few times. You seem super active on social media and just a really nice guy, to be honest with you. So I'm like, I'm going to hit up Ted. There, there you go. I'm going to hit up Ted King. And you were like, yeah, let's do this. And he was like, he said, yeah. I was like, yeah, he didn't really ask me any questions. <laughs> so I do a tiny bit of vetting. I make sure you have more than like eight followers. Okay. But yeah. Uh, Fair enough. Yeah. The timing, man, your timing was good because I've said no to a lot of podcasts lately. It's just been a crazy busy period of time. I'm like, yeah. uh, reach out to me in like six months and maybe I'll have some time. So it's worked yeah. out well. Well, man, I appreciate it. You actually were... Uh, when you were on Cervelo test team, I maybe mentioned this in the first message. Uh, you, I heard you were coming back to Green Mountain and I was dying to get my cat one so I could just be in that race. Cause it's like, yeah. you know, Green Mountain for anyone up in Northeast. Um, I was pretty new to cycling and one Chris Thader, like as a two. So a couple weeks before I was just harassing the guy. I'm like, please just let me get my cat one. He's like, dude, you clearly want this. Go do it. Yeah. And it was really awesome to see, uh, you know, I was so new. I didn't really know what your level of cycling was, but it was just how you positioned yourself, how you raced, um, how much everybody looked up to you. It was a really cool thing to see. And then crossing paths with you years later in gravel, um, I did land run. And unfortunately I crashed out with maybe like 20 miles to go. And someone was like, so how was the race going? I'm like, yeah, dude, it was, there were five of us. It was me, this guy from, uh, I forget what, what jersey he had on i was like pace mckelvin and some like really like mountain looking guy i'm like oh dude that was ted king and i was like oh damn dude (laughs) (laughs) did you crash in that gnarly muddy like the The one crazy section the one guy went down and i yeah that was my first gravel race and the guy i didn't realize like duh leave room between you in case somebody goes down yeah and so i endoed over him and the it was the crash wasn't that bad i literally chucked the bike though probably 20 feet and broke it so oh, no. i went to get on it and i was kind of like like 
my sunglasses were way far back and I'm like, Ooh, that's kind of weird. And I picked up the bike and the fork like fell out and I was like, well, I guess I'm not going to ride yeah. this bad boy back. Um, but it was, yeah, it was a good learning experience and, uh, yeah. What are you going to do? So, yeah. 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 Well, dude, Crazy. well, we'll, we'll very get to, good. Good to we'll, make your acquaintance again. Yeah. You as well. Um, we'll get into gravel, but really me as a roadie, if we can jump way back, um, mm-hmm. And really kind of talking about some of the whys or like your mindset of this process of, if I'm correct, you started racing in 2002 and then raced with Louis Garneau for a couple of years and then made the jump to priority health where you're now a pro and kind of what was your, when you started riding before you made it pro, like what was your mindset? Where were you trying to take this thing? Were you just like, Hey, I like bike racing. I'm just trying to get better. Or were you like, I'm going to the world tour. This is my ambition. No, I, I grew up in New Hampshire mm-hmm. and it was good small town living, like to get to your friend's house, to get to school. Occasionally we lived a mile away from school, uh, weekends, you just bomb around on a bike, but mm-hmm. the, you know, then there was a big separation that was, that probably wrapped up when you're 10, 12 years old. And I didn't really ride much through high school. Um, I would, I would bring the 2002 back to about probably the year 2000 is when I was really getting back into it. And that was, okay. Thanks to my brother. I have an older brother. He's three years my senior. He he went to a prep school for, for high school and got into cycling there. And then he took that to collegiate cycling and had a great deal of success. Um, I got into cycling as a result of being, you know, the, the adopter of his hand-me-down stuff. Um, I'd been a free varsity sport athlete through high school and, and then got to college. And I'm like, well, what am I going to do athletically? And, and just picked up cycling that way. Um, and it was, it was a combination of just really loving the sport and loving riding and being active and finding something new in combination with having an older brother to chase and sort of have hand me down, not just the, the hardware, but also the, you know, training techniques and, and coaching advice and stuff like that. So I was certainly not hell bent on, on world tour and, or whatever it was called at that point, it was yeah. more. I like racing. I'm having fun. I like being competitive. Sure. Every once in a while, if I'm going to, you know, as you start dabbling in cat five, four, three, two, one. Yeah. Winning is more fun than being pack fodder and finishing last. And I was having Mm -hmm. success. So it was just a, it was a constant evolution and constant progress to get through those ranks. What do you think? Is there anything that sticks out that you learn maybe from your brother or from, as you're making the jump through the categories that you still look back on that sort of helped you get to the next level? Like, we're all trying to accumulate this information, but were there any like gems that stick out to you that are like, Oh man, I still remember when so-and-so told me that. And that's still mm-hmm. true today, racing gravel. Um, I mean, especially in hindsight, it's, it's not like this great nugget that's going to take you guys all to the next level. It's embrace the moment. Mm-hmm. I feel like every aspect of cycling and this can then translate to life as well. We're always thinking about the next thing. Mm-hmm. So if you are, at your first day of training camp, you're looking forward to the final day. If you're on your stage one of a stage race, you're already like, oh man, stage six looks really hard. I got to be ready for stage six. If you have a 20 minute power effort, a 20 minute interval on minute one, you're like, oh my God, I can't wait for 20 (laughs) minute 20 to be over. So like embrace the moment, Uh, no matter where you are. And that's, that I think was something that really took me through those early years of cycling. Um, especially being able to say this now in hindsight, I mean, who knows how much I was doing it at the time, but 
but really just appreciate where you are, what you're doing, appreciate the interval, appreciate the day, appreciate the, the moment you're on the bike. I was going to ask you, do you think you always had that? Or I had read an article where once you knew you were retiring, you said the timing is amazing because now I get to look back on all these firsts, my first training camp, my first tour, my, and like, as I go through this last season, I'm really going to be able to soak that in. Do you think that knowing that you were going to leave instill this now, or have you always just been like, I'm here today, I'm living, I'm soaking this up because that's like a pretty, like, I don't want yeah, to say like, I deep, mean, it's heavy it's like, stuff. It's, yeah. it's philosophical. I, um, my father, he suffered a stroke 18 years ago and that was that was a transformative part of my life it was i was just getting into college uh, i was in college at the time i was getting into cycling at the time he was he was a just a pillar of our family and and really successful in his job and someone i really looked up to he's he's alive and every day presents his challenges i mean having a brain injury is is really really difficult it makes every day hard I think I, from that, especially over these 18 years, I've, I've come to appreciate just like that moment. You don't know when something's going to be torn from you. You don't know where life is going to steer you. I mean, my father, he was a healthy, happy person. No one would anticipate having this yank, like the rug yanked out from under him. So it's, it's, yeah, probably not something that I was thinking as a 19 year old. I'm like, I need to appreciate this moment, but it's yeah. something that's definitely really been distilled over these, over these years. Yeah. That's yeah. Okay. That it gets deep very quickly. I see what you mean. Oh, yeah. What's oh, yeah. um, what do you remember back from those days? Then once you hit, uh, I mean, maybe there's not really between pro Conti and then you go world tour, you're riding with the best in the world, you know, you're at the top of the game. What was some of that like process like that, you know, kind of the same question, but just what were you learning from your, you're riding with Peter Sagan, you're riding against people that you probably maybe had looked up to years before. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's such a quick rise. What do you think? Do you think it was, you just soak stuff up from watching some of these guys as you become teammates or were there like mentors to you in the game that were like really helping you along and things that kind of helped you feel like in those early years, like, okay, I belong here. Like, and things you just learned. So kind of hinging on my last answer it was an appreciation of where you are and moving through the ranks so when I was a collegiate racer I wanted to do well at collegiate racing but only a portion of me said okay I want to go pro and then I went pro domestically and raced three years domestically and and basically it's, it's a series of doors opening mm -hmm. um, so in those three years I had really no anticipation of going to Europe until 2008 I had a really good season I was the top ranked American in the in the NRC as it was called then the North American racing calendar and that opened up the opportunity to go to Europe you know when you get into cycling at the age of 19 you don't maybe maybe circumstantially to me maybe this could happen these days but I mean I feel like cycling is so acute now you need to be a a world-class sprinter or world-class hill climb hill climb specialist or time trial specialist you don't need to but these are things that we're seeing more and more of whereas mm -hmm. you don't see these like johnny come lately domestiques which is basically how i how i would describe myself when i first entered the world tour you know i mean when i'm 19 years old i'm just getting into cycling fast forward i don't know what 10 years 
I'm teammates with Mate Mahorich, who's a two-time world champion at the age of 19. I'm like, dude, I didn't even have a bike then. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I quickly found and fell in love with the sport of cycling. So yeah, you're watching all the, all the races, you're paying attention to the who's who's. Yeah. I remember being in my first uh, Perry Nice and racing against um, uh, uh, Valverde who at the time it was kind of sort of comical at the time he was in a, uh, a little bit of scrutiny with doping. And then after the race, he, he had to serve a ban. It was just my, my laughing point, not funny at the time, it was just how hard he made the race for us. And then there fast forward, a, a yeah. so he's, he's being banned. Um, I remember racing against Peter. It was, I think also, uh, Perry Nice, he won a stage. He was second on two stages and, and basically podiumed every single stage. As a, at that point, he was a 20-year-old. Thankfully, in the subsequent four years, I was teammates with him, so I raced with him instead of against him. Um, you know, I mean, there weren't... There weren't... There weren't nuggets that I would take away from them. I mean, you see the inspiration and the motivation and, and, and just the skill set that... That certain, you know, they're exemplary exemplars of the sport. Mm -hmm. In reality, 90% of the Peloton is a domestique, whether you're a super domestique or whatever, whereas 10% mm -hmm. are the people who are winning races. Mm -hmm. So, you know, over time, I felt that I was part of this world tour community. You you learn and pivot and shake and, and pick up things from, from, your, from your peers, but, you know, you do have to no longer purely be looking up to them and, and just right. say, yes, I am one of you. Yeah. What did you, so you have ridden in grand tours, classics, world championships, uh, which did you prefer more the grand tour or the one day all in? And what was the vibe like the difference in that? I mean, it has to be. Yeah. They're world apart in terms of experience. Um, I like, I like a one week race, okay. um, a Perry nice, a tour of Swiss, um, why is that? I think, I mean, more can be shaken out. You have more opportunity to, to, to show your cards as opposed to, you know, what's fascinating about a, about a one day race is how much luck is involved. Right. I mean, you know, a mistimed mechanical and your race is over, mm -hmm. which that stinks. That's also the crazy part about what makes the extraordinary cyclists really stand out you know the wout van arts the the vanderpools right now the sagans the you know the people who excel at one day races it's fascinating because you do need to have so much luck be on your side mm -hmm. um so you know it's a real fun thought experiment to, to think about the two um there's so much build up to a one day race it's also sort of fun to <laughs> even it out over a handful of days um, but I mean, yeah, re just real quick, each of them has a very unique experience, a one day race on the huge side, like a world championship or tour of Flanders or Perry Roubaix, they yeah. are the super bowl. Right. I mean, it's, it, it's fascinating. It's. It's just the hype from it. Like seeing like when we're us as fans is getting ready. It's like, Oh my God. Whereas when it's a grand tour, it's like, okay, we got this three weeks. What day off can I get off of work to watch a whole stage? Da -da -da. Mm -hmm. It's like ones you're like, 
meeting up and drinking a couple beers and we'll see where the night goes the other one's like yo shots right now let's get this rolling yeah. like we're out the <laughs> gate <laughs> like just all in from the gun uh-huh um so, so would you say okay so one week that's i wish there was more like it's just not very feasible but for amateurs to experience that i've only gotten to do uh tour of southland in new zealand which was seven stages i want to say but two mm-hmm. on a day so six days and it was crazy it was just like the experience for us when the longest we normally do is like three to four days when you get to five and six you're just wrecked in a different way and um yeah it's just i wish there was something more like that uh did um what's the gravel one on or oregon trail was i think Mm -hmm. five days so that was a cool experience you did did you do that one i did it two years ago yeah nice it was good. Um, it, it was gra- the the grading of gravel is yeah. uh, no pun intended very loose, uh-huh, and uh-huh. Um, well so yeah, just got to know what you're getting yourself into in terms of equipment and uh, terrain. I heard that was pretty chunky, pretty darn uh, r- rough, sharp, jagged, uh, unapologetic gravel. Some, and then a lot with sand, which. Huh. Um, unfortunately the bike that i had could only put 36 c on the back so that's a road bike that was not good and actually i so i you know i live in memphis tennessee just east of it now or yeah east of it now in this like little farm town and there's not many big hills so we go out to oregon and there's some crazy descending where i was like wow i'm way out of my league and barry wicks i don't know if you know the name he's a mountain biker so he saw me after the race we were catching him he's like dude, did you do the whole race on that bike? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, that's frightening. And I'm like, oh, you make me feel way better. He's like, no, seriously, you went down on that. And I was like, yes. He's like, good God, man. I'm glad you're still here. <laughs> so I was like, well, you make me feel good because descending is not my strong suit. But uh-huh. I was like, holy, how are people going so fast? He's like, okay, well, number one, I'm going to go faster than you anyways because I'm a pro mountain biker. But number two, that is scary as hell. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, okay. And I think there was actually an article that you put that was like, no one's ever complained about having too big of a tire on your bike. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. that was, oh, yeah, uh, seriously. I mean that the most narrow gravel tire I run is a 38 and in general, I run a 42 or 44 and I'd probably even go bigger as, as more bikes and frames allow it. Um, yeah. There's, it's nice to see that the industry is putting the data and science into aerodynamic and drag disadvantages and, and basically proving that they're not there so yeah go wider it's more comfortable more fun more grip all around better do you um what's i had noticed you made a post about is it pronounced Rene hurst uh hurst? there's no t and i don't speak hurst. french so however you want to pronounce h-e-r-s-e as a okay. french airs <laughs> so do you what's the like knobby situation with you are you more like I guess, do you swap tires often or are you like, I'm wanting gunning with these all, all summer long? I am blessed in rubber and carbon. Okay. So I have a nice inventory from which to choose. Okay. Um, my tire sponsor, Renee Ayers, they, they basically have two tire patterns. One is a total slick and one is a knobby tire. And the knobby uh-huh. tire is, anybody who sees it, it looks chunky it looks robust it looks i mean check them out google r-e-n-e-h-e-r-s-e um it's 
it's brilliance come in the knobby tire it's brilliance comes in its simplicity because it is still rounded you corner incredibly well you have great traction going forward because there's always a, a contact point which sounds silly and obvious but it's, it's an incredibly smooth running tire okay so it's great on pavement it's great off-road um and then yeah basically i say the the shorter answer to your question is how do i feel about knobbies i'm actually more and more running slick tires when yeah. other people are showing up with knobbies and then i just run a really wide tire at low pressure which offers again that that low rolling resistance but then better grip better comfort um and it's a it's a sweet ride so the only time i'm really ever using a knobby is if i know i'm diving into corners if i'm doing something that's slick if there's if there's some mud if there is uh uh you know wet rocky roots that sort of thing okay what are you doing bigger are you doing like 28 on the road do you use 25 minimum 32 on the road dang okay yeah. wow yeah. Because I went to 28 and I feel like I'm driving a Cadillac, but I don't like it. And I went back to 25 and I feel like it corners better. I must be doing. You went back wrong. to 25 and you went back to 2012. Yeah, but I'm from from the science from the. It's not. It's it is a proven science that you are not going slower. There is the perception of speed because the wider tires are going to offer a more plush ride, a more comfortable ride. The shorter way of putting it. But do you feel it corners as well? Uh, no, the corner's eight to 25 times better because you have a better wider contact point. Yeah. So instead of being on rails and having a really jagged ride, the contact point on a wider tire at lower pressure is wide and short instead of long and narrow. Yeah. And long and narrow is what causes more drag. So you're actually going slower on a skinny pumped up tire. What type of pressure are you running on the road? uh i don't know offhand 60 to 70 okay maybe i just haven't pumped up too much i'm like 85 90 yep i'm also like sram if you google sram tire pressure guide there's a really great guide that it's not i mean take basically what it's going to show you they'll give you as as narrow specific uh recommendations as you want mm-hmm but I think the take home point is that we're running our tires too high. Mm -hmm. And so I think it really will. Uh, I mean, there, there's a lot of variables that that website takes into consideration. Boom, wider tires, lower them, have a better ride. We'll check that out. I know when I first started riding uh, on one of my first teams, a guy had come over from triathlon. He's like, so <laughs> he was running his tires at 135. And he's oh, yeah. like, he did a crit and he was like, something's not right with this bike. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what's, what was it like? So, you you leave the road scene and you i'm trying to i was trying to look back when exactly like you fully jumped into gravel but you were even talking about in the one i think it was bella news article you're like dirt 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 like you clearly had your mind towards this gravel thing what was it like uh <laughs> no longer being on a team and kind of doing the privateer thing and now you're lining up as like ted king the former world tour pro i'm you know um it's what was the transition it's, like it's goofy and it's interesting and unique and funny and fascinating so i i knew i was going my final year of racing was 2015 and early in 2015 i knew i was going to retire at the end of that year so i really enjoyed it and embraced it we talked about that at the top of the show mm -hmm. and it was over that year in the next few months after i announced my retirement that 
some sponsors started coming forward saying like, hey, we like your voice. We like what you represent in the sport. Would you like to continue in the sport of cycling? In 2015, the term gravel didn't really exist, especially not in the capacity that it is now. There wasn't an industry behind it. There was, uh, there were a handful of events. They probably called them mixed terrain at the time. Um, and it was early in 2016, my first year of, of being retired, I did an event in Austin, Texas uh, with SRAM, it was South by Southwest, and met up with Rebecca Rush, who was a name that I knew, but I didn't really know Rebecca at all. And she, she really took me under her wing. She likes being sort of like a big sister to me and saying, hey, Rody, stop being a dork, come over to this gravel scene. Come to Dirty Kansas. And so that was really my introduction outside of doing something like um, in Northern California, there's this amazing series called the Grasshopper Adventure Series, which yeah. again, that hits that mixed terrain thing. Cause there's some gravel, some roads, some sand, some everything that's been going on for 22 years, I think. Um, so yeah, you were especially not using the term gravel 22 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, basically that Dirty Kansas 2016, that opened my eyes to it. That was the the boom of gravel was going to happen with or without me. My timing was really good. There was no term gravel, really. There was no term privateer. It was, again, back to this just like constant segue as I would define my entire career. So more events popped up and I was, I have been doing more and more events and, and having success in them. And it goes back to that, my early days in cycling, like more than anything, I like having fun. I like riding my bike. I like being part of this community. I like meeting people and traveling and doing all the fun things that a bike allows you to do. Uh, standing on top of a podium is a blast too. It's not the do all end all. And that's, I think that's really where I hang my hat in the sport right now. Um, I have a one-year-old daughter, so I sleep not as much as I used to. Um, I joke that my wife likes to ride and compete even more than I do, which may or may not be true, but you know that's a balance. It's not like, whoop, the King family just shows up, and here we are. We're going to do events. It, there is a ridiculous number of logistics that goes into the traveling circus that is a family going to a bike race. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm tremendously blessed. It's, it's it's fun to be able to pick and choose the sponsors with whom I work um, instead of, you know, there's, there's very little saying no when you're on a world tour team, right? Here's your bike. Here's your glasses. Here's your clothes. Here's your race schedule. Here's everything you're going to do, mm-hmm. which is simple on one hand. And it's, it's not terribly fun. Whereas now it's yeah, pick and choose your schedule and with whom you work and, and what do you want to do in this sport? So mm-hmm. it's a what wild you- ride. It is a wild ride. What's the, what do you think, what are you most proud of from, you know, maybe, I don't know, it's a weird question to follow up with after you're like, you know, it's not the be all end all of not only racing or definitely not winning, but are the results that you're most proud of along this journey? Um, why is that? Um, say experiences, because maybe it's not the results, you know, but like first grand tour or, you know, what I don't want right. to Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll sort of answer it in two parts. Racing, my first Grand Tour was massive. That was the Giro. I can't believe I finished it. Um, I'd broken my collarbone in February of that year. Came back. That was my first World Tour year. And then came back and just had the most absurd 
back to back to back to back to back. Uh, what did I do? The spring classics, Ardenne classics, um, to Roman T, to Tour of Roman D to the Giro, which, you know, you talk to any seasoned pro and they're like, dude, what you just did is silly. I'm like, <laughs> I was just blindly naive. Okay, that's the schedule they give you. Set, so send Ted to the it. race. <laughs> exactly. If he can survive this, he's probably going to be okay. And so, yeah, you know, you watch grand tours like you were talking about. Like here in the States, you flip on the computer or TV every every fifth stage and you watch something. And then two weeks later, you're like, oh, my God, they're still racing bikes. Can you believe it? <laughs> so just getting through that, I think, was a pretty cool accomplishment. Um, the success that I had racing with Peter was awesome. I mean, we were on virtually the same race calendar for four years. Mm-hmm. So that was it's, it's really cool to work with like once in a generation kind of cyclist. He was mm-hmm. just, he's extraordinary. Um, what makes him so extraordinary? He's just, he's born to ride a bike. I mean, you, you'd, you'd prompted me with sending me some questions earlier and, and you, you know, you listed my teammates, Carlos Sastra, Tor Hushoft, Peter Sagan, and all three are so different. Um, I say Peter is born to ride a bike because his skills are exemplary. Like his mm-hmm. power that he can put out is above and beyond. Um, and then I, I mean, I always tell my, my circus animal story where we're, we're training in this, in the white roads of Italy. We're at a team training camp. We rip through a, a white road section and get up on the other side and the team's coming back together after this call it five minute section everybody's huffing and puffing as we start going up a hill and then Peter pulls a wheelie and he pulls one hand off the bars going up a dirt road, probably 12%. And then he pulls both hands off his bars. So he's doing a no handed wheelie up a 12% grade at the end of an interval when everybody else is like hardly able to push their bike forward. It's just a league of their own, right? He's different. Um, Whereas now we're going in a tangent, but I introduced tangents are great. Tangents Uh, are great. Tor, Tor was, you know, he's, He's big machismo, North uh, Norwegian, just great guy. Really fun dynamic, sort of the the proud sprinter. Mm-hmm. And Carlos was Carlos Astro was a he was very reserved. He was quiet. He was a family guy. He uh, I think he was quite a bit more analytical, and mm-hmm. you know he had to be tactful in the way that he was racing. And so it was it was interesting working with and being on teams with. Uh, with all three of those guys you see so there's that diversion complete what was the original question no dude that's great this is actually i need to start calling this like cycling tangent steven bassett was on here he's like dude you might have to go on a tangent i was like please do he went off talking about like uh he has i can't remember his his, he has japanese ancestry in his family somewhere and so he's talking about dojos and stuff and he's like building his dojo in europe and i'm like dude this is incredible we need these tangents that's awesome (laughs) um (laughs) what's you know what's dry so you know, I'm trying to, what's driving you? It seems like you're big on this whole journey thing. You know, there's not just one piece of cycling that has made you Ted King today. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you have a family, which is an incredible responsibility and joy that is off the bike, but your wife's involved in the bike. Like, what do you see is how are bikes still pushing this forward? Do you just love to ride and, and, or is it, you're like, Hey, this is my kind of my career now. And it works with my family or like, or maybe you're like, dude, I need to go rip up all these gravel events and let people know who's still boss. And um, <laughs> there is, I'd, I'd love if your ego showed through and you're like, dude, I just want to crush people. I just want yeah. 
All right, everybody, that's the episode for today. We will be back with part two with Ted King very soon. Thanks again for checking this one out. And if you found it beneficial or helpful or just inspired you a little bit, got something positive from it, please tell a friend about what we're doing and shoot Ted a message and tell him thanks for his time. We greatly appreciate it. Talk to you guys soon.